Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is a Marshall Scholar and Viana's predecessor as the ASSU president, Erica Scott. Hi, Erica. Hi, Cricket. Thanks for having me. Of course. How are you today? I'm doing well. I was catching up on homework. So you were an international relations major, and I think you got to study before the pandemic. Is that right? Yes, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) And you went to Paris, didn't you? Yeah, I spent my junior fall in Paris. It was a great experience. I felt like my language improved tremendously. I loved my host family. Um, We got to do a lot of stuff together. I ran a half marathon with them, which was a highlight. I wanted to visit them actually while I'm uh, in Europe, but obviously with circumstances right now, it's going to be kind of hard. I think you said that there was a big social movement going on in Paris when you were there. Um, is yeah, that right? it was the, the Gilets jaunes and like yellow vest movement. It was a popular uprising that, that happened near the end of my quarter there. Yeah, it was definitely really interesting to watch and kind of crazy to see you know, something similar happen again in the U.S. this year, but obviously different motivations. Now you're studying Middle Eastern studies, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yep, I'm doing Near and Middle Eastern studies at um, SOAS University of London. So how is that different from studying Middle Eastern or African American studies over here? It's tremendously different. I would say SOAS in particular is a very international institution that I think it can sometimes be hard to find that sort of student body in the U.S., um, but most of my classmates are not even from Britain. So people are calling in from all over the world right now because we're in online class. I feel like there's just such an international perspective in all my classes. And I think a lot of the professors take very different philosophical and practical approaches to the same subjects I was studying in undergrad. So it's been really refreshing, honestly, to kind of hear both sides. I think a lot of professors here are a bit more like leftist than my undergrad professors were. So I've kind of appreciated getting that new perspective in the things I study. Do you think the liberalism over there reflects the liberalism of the countries in general? Stanford obviously is not like a a super conservative institution, but I do think even international relations, right, when you're studying in the United States, there is a very American bias to what you learn. So even though I was doing IR and, and focusing on Middle Eastern studies, a lot of what we learned did have a focus on America and American foreign policy and America's relationship to the Middle East. Whereas I think here, because things are a bit more global, we're just looking at America more critically from a different perspective. And also having professors who are more grounded in you know, socialist traditions or, or even Marxist traditions, um, which is not as prevalent in the United States. You worked primarily during the before COVID era, which now seems like so long ago. Um, <laughs> what, was, <laughs> what was the focus of your platform with Isaiah? Isaiah and I had an ABC kind of nickname for our platform. We kind of divided our issues into three buckets, uh, access and accountability, which focused kind of administrative issues, right? How do we internally improve the way the ASSU functions? And then beyond the bubble was the B, uh, which focused on how can we extend our advocacy beyond the Stanford student body to encompass things that might be not traditionally a part of ASSU advocacy housing equity in the Bay Area, or, or workers' rights, those sorts of things. And C was caring for our community, and that kind of covered more traditional ASSU advocacy issues like diversity and inclusion, Title IX, um, sexual violence prevention, those sorts of things. I remember sitting with you, and I think MTL, during the Title IX town hall. I think that was one of the last big events before the pandemic hit. And I think that that was a really powerful thing because we got to hear from 
directly from administrators and we don't normally to do that. How was planning that event for you? But I remember we worked closely with, with Shanta on that. And I really have to say how indebted I am, especially in the realm of sexual violence prevention, Title IX, to the legacy that, that Shanta left because that was quite evidently one of the largest issues she focused on during her tenure, and especially having folks on our cabinet, so our directors of sexual violence prevention, that had also worked under Shanta, and I think having that con- continuity was really, really helpful, and I it was humbling. I felt like I learned so much from their advocacy, so I really do want to kind of put a spotlight on the work that they did, um, both in that town hall and throughout the year on, on that issue front, because I truly could not have asked for a better team in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's super important that every ASSU administration focuses on something that the next administration can carry over a little bit into Mm -hmm. what they're doing. I think you also worked a lot with Res Ed. And I was wondering, how did that change after the pandemic started? Because the income disparity for the graduate students, their inability to access on-campus housing because of the expense associated with it, Mm -hmm. is a lot easier to justify when there are actually grad students on campus and off campus. And right now, it seems like there's kind of a mass exodus from the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, that definitely counts as one of the handoff issues, right? I think, obviously, we were very focused on issues of, of affordability, particularly, um, as you said, with, with housing and grad students prior to the pandemic. But these have gotten just exacerbated post-pandemic. I haven't really been on campus or around campus since, since graduating, but understanding that EBGR, which was supposed to be somewhat of a solution to the grad student housing issue, given the circumstances now, has not really been able to be that. These issues are still persisting. Even as an alum, I am planning to help with the ResX Advisory Board. Actually, I was just talking to Susie's office about that recently. So I'm excited to continue being part of that conversation because I know ResX was something that Isaiah and I were, were pretty involved in prior to the pandemic, but it kind of got put to the wayside as we were focusing on crisis management in the last couple of weeks of our term. The pandemic changed everything for everyone, obviously. How did it change your focus? Quite frankly, it forced us to change from proactive to reactive in our approaches to policy. It did kind of hurt to have to abandon things that were part of our platform, right? Projects that we had been working on throughout the entire year, like just for one concrete example, one of my pet projects that I worked closely with Students for Sustainable Stanford on was the airport shuttle initiative, which had been really successful. We were scaling it up. We were getting uh, different centers on campus to contribute money towards it. And we were about to like roll out our, our spring break shuttle initiative. And we ended up having to cancel it as everyone was evicted from campus on short notice. That kind of hurt, having to toss things aside that we had put a lot of work in and things that we wanted to kind of close out our term on, right? We were weeks away from what we thought would be the elections and we're really excited to put a capstone on a lot of our initiatives. Then everything changed, clearly. And I think given the intense needs that were arising in the community, students who were being so adversely affected, by the pandemic, who were running short on food, on income, transportation. It was clear we just needed to drop everything and focus on how we could help those urgent needs. So the last six weeks of my term were, were pretty much focused on responding to those needs, whether that was by reallocating and distributing over $150,000 of ASSU money towards food and transportation needs, or whether that was advocating for equitable grading policies in the faculty senate. I think those were all the things that we were forced to focus on during the last weeks of our term. But you know, it was never going to be enough, but I'm glad that Isaiah and I were able to kind of play a role in mitigating some of that crisis. 
Right. So you mentioned a whole lot of things that I want to talk about there, and I'm not sure that we have time for all of it. The airport shuttles were super popular. I think that it's really important to have something like that. The current plan is to have freshmen and sophomores on campus for winter quarter, juniors and seniors on campus for spring. It's important to ask, do you think there's any viable substitute? Because transportation is now airport shuttles, at least not in the form that they were, would be the most practical solution. But do you think that there might be another one? It's a very good question. So I think the whole idea with the airport shuttles was also a carbon offset idea, right? That students were quite often taking single rider, you know, Uber or Lyft rides to the airport, which just is like a huge waste of, of gas. And by putting people together on a shuttle, you were able to kind of offset some of that carbon emission. So I think with the social distancing necessary to comply with COVID restrictions, I'm not sure it would have a positive environmental impact at that point, right? Because each shuttle wasn't that big and you'd probably have to only have, you know, five or six people per shuttle if you were to comply with social distancing. Um, all of that is to say, I think financially, right, the affordability piece is crucial. I'm not sure that shuttles as we were running them would be the best solution to that at this point. And quite honestly, I would love to see the university step up and, and offer some assistance in that realm because I think students are hurting right now and it's their responsibility to help offset some of that. But yeah, in terms of what the ASSU can do, I think it gets trickier this year, right? Especially as there are fewer students on campus able to organize the service since we did require a lot of volunteers to help check people in, et cetera. So it complicates the picture. University assistance for students is something that is very difficult. I think that a lot of students feel that there should be some assistance. I know I certainly feel that way, especially because we got a note from administration saying that everyone should buy refundable travel. And that's just not practical for a lot of students. It really just emphasizes the disparity. But as far as I'm aware, there is no plan to provide any sort of assistance, except maybe with financial aid, but I'm not sure. There was also a note from Princeton recently that they're having all the students on campus for spring semester. And there were some notes at the beginning of the year from universities saying, hey, everyone, shelter wherever you're going to shelter for the year because we're not going to have people on campus. And so one hot topic is, should universities announce it as far in advance as possible, or should they try to have students on campus and then by default remain fairly neutral until the last minute? What are you thinking about that? That's a tough question. It's definitely one that my current university is grappling with because students are coming from all over the world, not just all over the country. People are having to move you know, very, very long distances to London to come for in-person classes. And so they are demanding some clarity, like, are we going back in person or are we not? Because like, I'm not moving from Indonesia to London just to sit, do online class, right? I understand the concern and the desire for some sort of assurance or clarity in that. I don't feel entirely qualified to answer the question of whether or not universities should have people back. I think that's a public health question that's a bit out of my wheelhouse. I do think the point you were making about just support, right, like as much support as possible that universities can offer to students is critical right now because income disparities everywhere are being exacerbated by the pandemic, not least in the Stanford student body. And so I think every decision that's made has to have that in mind and recognize that buying refundable tickets, right, is not something that's financially possible for everyone. I don't think there is a right answer to whether or not, you know, when schools should inform students um, about their plans, because I'm not even sure they know. Like you were saying earlier, there's a lot of having to focus on reactions rather than proactiveness. Mm -hmm. And one good question within the ASSU, and I guess almost ev every advocacy organization is, how do you balance this 
need to react to events as they happen with long range or proactive type of planning? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent question. I think it became a lot harder right this year where I feel like if I wasn't still in office, which I'm not, I would feel a little bit uncomfortable making long-term plans when the future is, is so uncertain. It's obviously uncertain for the university as a whole, but I, I wouldn't discount how uncertain it is for student government because all of our operations in student government depend on the reality of students being on campus and participating in student life, right, and using our funds. And if we can't even be sure that students will be present on campus, then a lot of our planning becomes pretty moot. So I can only you know, imagine that challenge right now for folks that are, that are currently in office. Even in non-pandemic situations, there always is a tension between long-range planning and, and being reactive. And I think it becomes quite hard as a student because your term is so short, right? You're only in office for a year for most positions and you're graduating within four years. So I think that's where... I think long-range planning and institutional memory go hand in hand because you can only make those plans if you can feel confident that your knowledge is going to be passed on to people who are coming in office after you. It can't be overstated how important it is to have, as you had mentioned, Cricket, right, those projects that you can hand off to your successors, even people who are willing to play a role in student government, not just one year, but multiple years of their undergraduate experience. Those two things are, are two sides of the same coin, in my opinion. I also wanted to ask you about grading policies, because this year we went back to optional letter grades versus satisfactory mm -hmm. no credit. The satisfactory no credit options still do count for ways requirements, which is good. But one thing that there has been an issue with, and I don't remember if this has been completely resolved, but at one point, the chemistry department, among others, were not accepting satisfactory no credit courses for major credit. That's a problem for a number of reasons. Back before spring quarter started, you and Isaiah were advocating for universal A or no credit. What was the argument for that? And do you think that that should still continue this year? For context, when the whole grading debate was, was happening, uh, so Isaiah and I, as part of our, I guess as part of our beyond the bubble, um, that aspect of our platform, we also did work very hard to connect with student governments you know, around the country and, and particularly within California. A lot of the product of all the ideas during that period were the product of conversations that we had with other student body presidents who were facing the same debates at their respective institutions. So we were on kind of like conference calls with like the presidents of like USC, UCLA, Yale. Um, the universal A, no credit policy was one that was advocated by, I think, student government at Harvard. Yale might have tried to advocate for it in like one other school. The idea was one that, that did come from other, other student governments. So we knew it was Probably a tough ask. I wasn't entirely surprised that the faculty didn't come for it. That being said, I think I think Isaiah and I both felt very, very strongly that some sort of universal policy had to be implemented, particularly in the spring, right? So if it wasn't going to be universal A, no credit, it had to be at the very least universal satisfactory, no credit. That was a hard position to take at first because I think if you remember, right, there was a lot of controversy over these different grading options and there were a lot of students who felt like vehemently opposed to the idea that their grades would potentially be taken away, right? People who were pre-med, people who had other reasons to worry about their GPA. We did feel like we were taking somewhat of an unpopular opinion by advocating so strongly for a universal policy. But I still really stand by that and felt like it was the right choice because especially given how the spring played out with you know George Floyd's murder and all the racial unrest that happened, it became quite evident that having any sort of opt-in grading system would have been 
so blatantly unfair towards students who were suffering on so many fronts, students who were on the front lines, students who just didn't have any ability to focus on their schoolwork, honestly, myself included. I found myself very, very grateful for the fact that we had universal satisfactory no credit, particularly in the wake of, of George Floyd's murder. It was just really, really hard to focus on schoolwork. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying, right, I think in that context, having universal policy was the right move. I guess I can't really speak as much for this year. People should be cognizant of the ways that opt-in grading can exacerbate inequalities that already exist and that are getting worse right now during the pandemic. Right. And one thing that also has been happening this year is that professors, like with spring quarter, there's no finals week for any of the quarters, as far as I'm aware. Professors have still been having finals, uh, not final projects, but final exams. And they also have been having final projects and research papers and things on top of that, which is fine, except for the fact that some people have had projects with due dates of 2nd of December, and that's way, way, way after the final day of the quarter. Professors are thinking, as far as I can tell, that Providing people with extra time will give them a grace period, I guess, and should help flatten the curve of having extra obligations. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the impulse from professors to try to figure out, okay, like, how can I make assignments as flexible as possible? But I do understand the concern that you don't want to have sneaky finals, basically, even though you're not technically supposed to have finals. Like, I, I disagree with the idea that people should be trying to skirt these these restrictions in, in ways like that. And I can't pretend to know, right, the motivations of professors, and, and I would give them the benefit of the doubt and assume best intent, right? But I think it can be hard, especially when everyone's not on campus, for professors to know the realities that students are facing. The most important thing is to listen to what students are saying and what their needs are and what their capacities are. I can't pretend to speak to that right now since I'm not on campus, I'm you know in a different country. I would assume that a lot of the barriers to learning and to participating in class that existed in the spring still exist now. I'm not sure there's a compelling reason to kind of go back to normalcy in terms of in terms of grading. And the last thing I'd say on that piece as well is I think I heard this in the faculty senate debates, but there was a lot of concern on the part of professors that if we didn't have traditional grading or traditional assessments, that students would somehow kind of like lose interest, check out, not be as invested in their schoolwork. And I kind of didn't buy that argument because I do think Stanford students, that good old intellectual vitality, I think people are engaged in their schoolwork when they're able to be. And it's not just because of the grade they get or the fact that they have a deadline. Also having that trust between professors and students that even if there are no finals, right, trusting that students to the best of their ability uh, will be engaged because they care about the subject material. Trust should exist. I think we are part of a, a very vibrant academic community and we shouldn't forget that. One thing that I've heard from various administrators is that the administration is separate from the faculty. I don't know how to feel about that. And I'm hoping that as someone who is now at another school that you might have some more perspective on it. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson that I learned from my interactions with Faculty Senate. And I think that's one of the frustrating things about being in student advocacy, because there are so many barriers that exist, you know, not because people don't like what you're trying to do, but because the way that Stanford's set up as an, as an institution can be very decentralized. It allows people to have a lot of control over their individual domains, right, kingdoms within the university. It makes it hard to create wholesale change. And, and one of those examples is the fact that faculty governance is relatively autonomous at, at Stanford. And 
one concrete example of you know something Isaiah and I both really cared about was was faculty diversity and increasing faculty diversity, and that became obviously way more salient this year as as black issues took a forefront. But it was difficult having conversations with leadership and faculty senate and even the provost and having them tell us like at the end of the day, right, the provost cannot force a department to hire a certain person or cannot force, you know, certain people to be appointed as professors. A lot of that autonomy does reside within the individual departments. So increasing faculty diversity at Stanford, right, there are multiple ways you can approach it, but at its core, it requires getting individual department heads on a case-by-case basis to perhaps change their their hiring practices. That was one frustrating example of how faculty governance is sometimes divorced from other parts of university governance. There are important structures to learn about if you want to create change, right? It doesn't always have to impede change, but it does change your strategy when you're an advocate. Earlier, you were talking about beyond the bubble as part of your focus, which I really like that idea. And one of the projects that you really took on with a lot of other people was the divestment movement for the ASSU. That obviously has not extended to the university, but I think it's a super important part of the ASSU and the SSE. Would you mind talking a little bit a little bit more about that? Sure. So I can give a little bit of background. So this was one of my favorite kind of pet projects I did during my tenure. It was a great learning opportunity. I, I learned so much. Basically, as ASSU president, I was also wearing a second hat as chair of the board of directors for, for Stanford Student Enterprises. Basically, it's an oversight board for the financial branch of the ASSU. We have an internal endowment. It's obviously not as large as the university's endowment. So the idea to, to kind of reinvest that in, in more ethical ways, it, it was something that had been brought up in the past, most recently by Shanta and also by uh, Matt Cohen, who was previously in the ASSU. It was something that I wanted to take on first and foremost because, you know, I'd worked very closely with some divestment-oriented student groups, most notably Fossil Free. I really admire their work. Seeing the frustration that they encountered on the university level made me reflect on our governance and say, like, wait a second, like, why can't we just take that step even if the university won't? I was motivated by that. And then also the idea that it was a way to have our practices reflect our constituents, I think, as student government, even more so than the university, right? Like we are directly representing people um, and making sure that our, like we put our money where our mouth is, right? Where our investments should reflect the values of the people that we serve. I can give like a quick overview of the, of the process or I can stop there. <laughs> it's, it's quite a long story, but it was exciting. Oh no, definitely keep going. I think this is super important. I worked with like a small team on this. Richa Gupta, who's our investment analyst at SSE, was like my right-hand woman. She's amazing. And then we also worked with professional staff within ASSU and SSE, like Susan, our accountant. But basically what we tried to do was first get a sense of what students' priorities were in regard to ethical investment. And then second, try to do research based on those priorities to figure out like what funds our money should go towards. And so on the first piece, we did a lot of focus groups with students, which was fun. So we got to walk around to different locations, sit down with students and just ask them in regard to investments, right? Like what are some of the top issues that you care about? What things would you not want your student fees invested in? What are things that you would want to be invested in? And so we kind of curated a list of, of issues that students cared about off of that. Obviously fossil fuels was was 
one of the biggest ones, but also things like private prisons, ICE, weapons sometimes came up. We also had roundtables with a lot of student groups that were very focused on ethical investment-related issues like Fossil Free, like SJP, other political groups that had opinions on this. And I've tried to get a holistic sense for what students might want and also for how often students wanted to be like checked in right about this process because I know a lot of students were of the opinion like I don't really care what you do with my money like don't really talk to me I'm not that engaged in student politics so getting a sense for how much people wanted to to know about our investment processes right like how much transparency should we aim for so after that we did a presentation to our board and Richa and her team put together a lot of research on different like funding opportunities that would align with those goals right that we that we got from the student body. After that, we kind of had the green light from the board, like, okay, let's go ahead and, and, and move our money into these new funds. But then COVID hit, which kind of scrambled things because the market tanked. Um, so we had to wait a little bit before moving our money. But it sounds like finally this fall, they were able to move our assets, which was really exciting. I'm hoping that in terms of next steps in the future, one thing that did get derailed by COVID that I wanted was to have a better feedback and transparency mechanism between the ASSU and the student body in terms of our investments, like maybe once a year, right, we publish an investments report that people can comment on and they can say like, hey, like, I like that you're invested in this thing. I would prefer if you guys divested from this thing so we can have that continuous conversation. So I think it was productive what we were able to do this year and I want to see more of it in the future. Is there any direct effect of our investments on like the SSA's practices in the future? The internal endowment basically it's like a historical pool of money that's kind of been growing over time. The payout from our internal endowment is what funds a lot of salaries and budgets within the ASSU, but it's not what goes towards the student groups that we fund every year. So there are kind of like two streams of money there. Student group funding comes more directly from like the, the fees that, that students pay on their tuition every single year. Yeah, our endowment payout goes towards like internal budgets for projects, paying people who have positions, that sort of thing. I think someone was talking about how the university's payout on the endowment has kind of been shrinking, especially this year. Well, but what affects the payoff of the endowment? Oh, I see what you mean. So I guess given the terrible market outlook this yeah. year, I think what it would most directly mean, right, is that like internal budgets for the ASSU would shrink. So maybe like exact, for example, has like a discretionary budget that we mm -hmm. use to do projects that might shrink this year. But I think Maybe our CEO would be a better person to ask um, in terms of that outlook. From what I understand, the university's endowment payout took a bigger hit than ours did, which is, I mean, good for us. I think it's important to understand with endowments in general, you can't really dip into the actual endowment funding because first of all, if you do that, then they're, even when the market is looking a little bit more positive, you get less out of it. Yeah, it's a really complex question. I think being in office did... I learned a lot about the endowment politics at Stanford and did gain an appreciation for how complex the endowment is. And I think it is often something that students think, well, like Stanford has this massive pot of whatever it is, like $22 billion yeah. to dip into. Like, why don't they fund these things? And I mean, it is more complicated than that. And I remember talking to somebody who gave like a pretty like specific example, but there are a lot of donors who donate money for very, very specific purposes to the endowment. And like, you literally can't use it for anything else other than that. This amount of money is only for a student from this high school who is a rower and like, gets a scholarship. 
Um, that was, you know, a fake example, but sometimes <laughs> it is really that specific. Wow. And then if that person happens to pass away, right, you can't change the designation of that money without, like, significant legal battles. That doesn't describe the entire endowment, and I do think there's obviously so much more room for Stanford to spend its money better. In regard to divestment, we presented the results of our process to the board of trustees, their committee that was focused on on questions of divestment. You know, I did find myself frustrated because I think Stanford should divest from fossil fuels, for example, and, and I don't think it would be disastrous to the endowment payout, as some people might try to argue. It is complicated. Endowment politics is complicated, and it was a learning journey for me for sure this year. Very glad that I engaged in it. One thing you mentioned is that a lot of students were talking about how they didn't really care about getting involved with the student politics and especially with the divestment and stuff. I just don't really view that as a political issue, though. I think that pretty much anyone would argue that the money needs to be invested differently. I don't think, especially when you have a lot of people who are talking about how we should invest in things that are fossil fuel free, it doesn't really seem like that political an issue. So I, I guess I'm wondering where the view about that being political comes from. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I should have clarified what I meant there. As you know, Cricket, right, with any ASSU issue, there's like, a relatively small percentage of the population that cares a lot about whatever you're talking about and a much bigger percentage that really does not care at all. Right, of course. Um, or has not, you know, taken the opportunity to engage. And so I think when we were doing our focus groups, there were people that were like, I don't want to participate in this because I don't really care that much. <laughs> um, or people that, you know, didn't feel like they needed to know where we were investing, didn't need those updates, that they just kind of trusted us to do it on our own and didn't feel the need to give input. Which is valid. I think there's a lot of students who, who feel that way, have other things that they're working on that take up their time. But that was an opinion. And I, I kind of understand it a little bit more now, I'm not going to lie. Like as I'm a one-year master's student at this university, and I've gotten emails from the undergraduate student body, student government, and I'm kind of like, oh, well, this isn't relevant to me, right? Like I don't feel like I am as invested in student issues at this university given that I'm only here for a year, given that I'm a master's student, given that it's COVID. So I can understand the impulse to just not get involved sometimes. My view on it is that no advocacy organization can be effective without a lot of input. That's something that I struggle with as a part of a couple different advocacy organizations. I can't lie about the fact that for my freshman year especially, I really didn't know anything about the ASSU. I just kind of knew that there were some surveys that I took. Certainly was not the most caring person when it came to that. It's but, okay. Like caring takes time and energy. Got to be cognizant of the fact that not everyone has that at a given point of t- in time. But I do think that, like my experience being in advocacy as an undergrad, I mean, I do, you know, answer the surveys from the students' union here, right? And I, I voted in their elections because I was like, I know how it feels to be on the other end of that. So I think you're right. It is important to, even if people don't have the energy to be constantly engaged, make sure that we're soliciting input as much as possible because we do represent. A very large population of students, right? So it's important to get broad, broad input, broad uh, opinions. Right, of course. That is about all the time we have today. But you mentioned in our our text message exchange that the holidays are very different in Britain because, first of all, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. They don't really have much of a need to. Do you have any holiday plans? Well, fortunately, I am planning to travel home for the Christmas holidays. So I'm excited for that. I it, The sun sets at 3.45 p.m. here. Oh, God. And I live in Florida. Um, so I am <laughs> a little bit happy to go back to somewhere warm. We've been in lockdown for the month of November here. But even 
given the fact that the Brits don't celebrate Thanksgiving, we were still able to do something like small and COVID safe um, with my roommates. You take the little things now, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> so before we go, any final thoughts? just want to say thank you for doing this. I mean, I already harped on the importance of institutional memory earlier in our conversation. I think this is an excellent example of how to actualize that. So thank yeah. you, Cricket. That was Erica Scott, a Marshall Scholar and the 2019-2020 ASSU President. This has been another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm Cricket Beidelman, and have a great holiday season.